everyone, and welcome to the Vital Signs of Democracy podcast. Is democracy threatened in America? Because we never thought in our lifetimes we would be asking that question. Yet, here we are, seemingly more polarized than any other time in our history. So our goal in this podcast isn't to tell you the news, but to help us understand how the stories we hear and believe are crafted for other reasons and how that impacts our belief in a democratic form of governance. We're gonna slow down and take a deep look at motivations, interpretations, and yes, the facts themselves. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum. I'm also the president and CEO of Bridge Alliance, which is a coalition of almost 600 organizations who are working to bring about a thriving, just, and healthy democratic republic. You can learn more about our work at bridgealliance.us. And I'm David Reardon, Director of Vital Signs of Democracy. Every two weeks, we publish a rating of the threat level to democracy in this country based on our unique narrative analysis of the news. And we pay particular attention to how both Make America Great narratives from the Biden Democrats and the MAGA Republicans are garnering support from their voters or not. You can find our latest rating at vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. So. Welcome to July, and my oh my, has the Supreme Court been busy? In addition to like all the other you know diaspora of things to talk about right now, there is a lot to be said for what is happening in the Supreme Court, David. And I know you really wanted to talk about not just the current rulings, but one that was actually a year ago that has completely changed the political landscape. So what have you got for us? Out of all the things that are begging for our attention at the moment, the rulings that came down from the Supreme Court in the last week of their current session were certainly eye-opening for a host of reasons. Now, it's interesting, in the VSD scan that we released prior to the one on July 1st, we said it felt like the calm before the storm. And one of the primary reasons for that is, is the court had not yet issued their rulings on student debt, affirmative action at universities, or this strange, strange case out of Colorado that a Christian web designer was asking the court for their permission to deny service to same-sex couples. Well, we now know what those rulings are, and to no one's surprise that is paying attention, they are controversial to say the least. So we can discuss what those rulings tell us about the 6-3 conservative majority on the court. But where I want to focus first is something else that took place during the last two weeks. It was the one-year anniversary of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And as predicted a year ago, the state of abortion rights is more confused than ever. So let's look a bit at what has happened during this past year. Conservatives on the court claimed that all they were doing overturning Roe v. Wade was sending the decision on abortion rights back to the states where they believed it belonged. Well, that was their cover story, at least. What they were actually doing was, for the first time in the court's history, they were taking rights away from a particular segment of the population, in this case women, that had been in place for over 50 years. In the months following the decision... Abortion clinics in red states closed because abortion was now being outlawed or criminalized. There were longer wait times at facilities in states where abortion remained legal. 
and women were confused about whether they could terminate their pregnancies prematurely if there were health risks to them as a mother. As a result of the court overturning Roe v. Wade, America was left with a patchwork of state laws with abortion effectively inaccessible in certain regions of the country. Now, to be fair, there were some surprises as well. Some red states passed voter initiatives that ensured a woman's right to choose was enshrined in their state constitutions. But the fact remains is that at least 25 red states have passed either near-total abortion bans or concocted new laws that limit access. So I think we can fairly say, as predicted, that access to abortion is a real mess. And the same MAGA Republican and evangelical Christian forces that insisted that Roe be overturned are now pushing for a national ban on abortion across all states. So the debate rages on. But what I want to explore today with you is that the well-known narratives that are driving both sides of the abortion issues are really not the core threat that overturning Roe v. Wade represents to our democracy. But before I get to that, how are you feeling about the status of abortion rights one year out from the overturning of Roe v. Wade? When the initial ruling came down, it set me not on fire like raging, but more like a slow burn. Mm. And the slow burn is still there. And there's a determination, you know, while the the ruling doesn't impact me because I'm past that age. I am so, so angry for any woman who doesn't have the right to control her own body. So angry. And in that determination, I really want to look at what's behind this issue and who's, who is framing it. You know, because nobody that I know, nobody thinks that abortion should be used as a primary form of birth control. And that's often what the the anti-abortion activists talk about. For 50 years, the anti-abortion and pro-life framing has been about rights for the unborn. And so in that framing, they're talking about an expansion of rights to the unborn. But I want to get really clear here because a potential human that incubates inside of a woman's body is now taken precedent over the woman who's already here and contributing to society. So the pro-choice movement is framing the issue of abortion for women's health and for bodily autonomy. In other words, the rights of women to have the only or final say for themselves. And this government interference in my healthcare, in the healthcare of other women, is just quite frankly offensive. Thanks for that very personal expression of your emotions that are obviously still resonating a year after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And what you're pointing to is that a woman's right to choose is really a rights issue. And based on our narrative analysis at Vital Signs, that narrative is one of three that is usually expressed by both sides on this issue. The other two are If a state is going to allow abortion at all, how many months should it be legal? At the moment, the range being debated is from 6 to 24 weeks. And the last narrative that is in play on this issue 
is what exceptions are allowed, if any, to a state's abortion law that limits access. They usually can include, in case of rape, incest, or as you mentioned in your remarks, the health of the mother. All three of these narratives are certainly important aspects of what needs to be debated. But given our analysis at VSD, we feel that they don't get to the heart of the issue as it relates to the danger to democracy represented by the court's decision. The one thing that we hear missing from most of the current debates about abortion is that both sides seem to present their arguments for the protection of the developing fetus as if they are based on scientific fact. In truth, their arguments are based on their beliefs, not facts. And so why is that important to understand? Anti-abortion forces base their position on their belief that a viable human being deserving of protection begins at conception, the moment the sperm impregnates the egg. On the other hand, pro-life forces believe that the fetus becomes a human worthy of protection later in its development, usually when it is viable to live outside the womb. Both these positions are based on belief systems. Science cannot tell us when a fetus becomes a human that is deserving of protection. As a result, both sides act based on their beliefs. If you believe that a fetus becomes a human at conception, then by all means it is murder to abort it. But if you believe the fetus becomes a human sometime later in the pregnancy, then for you the fetus can be aborted before that date without it being considered murder. When Roe v. Wade was in place for the last 50 years, this fact was recognized. The ruling left the decision to have an abortion or not up to the woman herself with no government interference. What has changed now with Roe v. Wade being overturned is that the state decides if a woman can have an abortion or not. And the thing that makes that so dangerous to American democracy is that those laws are based on a belief system of a minority of Americans. This minority belief, with the support of the 6-3 conservative majority on the court, now claims the right to dictate to the majority of women what they can do with their bodies. Currently, 51% of Americans believe that a woman should have a legal right to abortion under any circumstances. 34% believe that a woman should have a legal right to abortion under certain circumstances, like an appropriate number of weeks, as an example. Only 13% of Americans believe that women should not have the legal right to an abortion at all. When you look at the pro and anti-abortion forces, the view that women should not have a legal right to an abortion is a belief of a very small community. That's what makes the overturning of Roe v. Wade so un-American. We fought a revolution with England to rid ourselves of a minority, in their case the monarchy, dictating to the majority about what they could do with their lives. We believed that the majority of citizens should decide the direction the country should take. In every Supreme Court decision that has come down recently, the Supremes have been deciding for us whose rights have priority. And I think one of the things that I've noticed in this you know, latest batch, if you will, of Supreme Court rulings is they are tending to rule in favor of 
the way the white Christian nationalists want them to rule. And that's where we're seeing, you know, the affirmative action decision that just came down um, that basically eliminated, you know, affirmative action in college admissions. I'm hopeful that colleges and universities will not revert back to how it used to be, you know, where they only privilege the, the wealthy and the alums, what is it, the legacy admissions, but they will continue to provide a diverse community for their students to experience so that we don't increase the inequality gap. I'm hopeful the other decision, though, that came out was this relieving student debt, saying that the Biden administration didn't have the authority to cancel this $20,000 per borrower on student debt. And I can't tell you how many people have been like, I had to pay my own student loans. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you you went to school in the 70s when it was cheap. <laughs> and now you can't graduate from you know a good college without fifty dollars to $100,000 in debt. And that's very different than what the promise of America, you were talking about being un-American with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think saddling our young people with a lifetime of debt or they even get out of the gate to actually have a career is also an American. I'm really glad you mentioned those other cases that were decided before the court recessed. You mentioned the rise of the influence of white nationalist Christians on the court. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the tweet that Senator Josh Hawley sent out on the 4th that included a fake founding father quote that promoted Christian nationalism. Hawley sang the praises of what he said was the abolitionist Patrick Henry's words. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Henry never said this. The quote was falsely attributed to him in a 1956 article from the Virginian, an anti-Semitic and white nationalist magazine. As much as some of the founding fathers had Christian beliefs, history tells us that the majority of Americans were atheists in 1776. They had just revolted against England partially because of their strong opposition to the idea of a state religion. The court also got rid of affirmative action programs as part of the admission process at universities. They claimed that considering a potential applicant's race as part of the admissions process was unfair to white students. All the while, they left in place the legacy practice at major universities like Harvard that benefits the children of families that were students at the university before or have contributed money to the university's endowment fund. The research shows us that the overwhelming majority of admissions that were granted based on this legacy consideration were for students from rich, white families. And last but not least, they're overruling President Biden's attempt to forgive a portion of the student's debt punishes middle- and low-income families much more than rich families that simply pay their children's tuition without borrowing money. All these opinions seem to point to the fact that the court is favoring the beliefs of the minority over the majority. And as we keep saying, that is just so un-American. Meanwhile, luxury gifts and travel oh. is Supreme Court justices without accountability or disclosure. 
There's one more thing we're noticing in our narrative analysis that has to do with the absolutism that anti-abortion forces are demonstrating as it relates to their belief system that human life begins at conception. In America, as we've been discussing, any citizen can have any belief system they want as it relates to when human life really begins. If anti-abortion forces were really basing their crusade to deny women the right to choose based on their belief system, you could disagree with their position, but you certainly couldn't fault them for it. But what I want to point out is that the notion that the human body and the soul are created as one at conception is inconsistent with fundamental Christian beliefs about what happens to the body and the soul at death. Having been raised in the church, I'm very familiar with the traditional Christian beliefs about what happens when a person dies. I'm going to get a bit existential here, but stay with me. According to traditional Christian beliefs, the soul leaves the body at death. At that moment, they separate. The soul leaves and either goes to heaven or hell, and the body is left behind. The traditional Christian church is completely comfortable with this idea that the soul and the body are separate as it relates to death. And I might add, there are many, many stories from people sitting with a person who is dying that claim that when the soul leaves, not only does the person's face completely change, but there is a sense that a light is moving up and out of the physical body. It's always seemed strange to me that traditional Christians are so adamant about the soul and the body being created as one that they cannot allow that what happens at death could also happen at conception that the physical body begins to form as a vehicle that the soul can enter into any time during the development of the fetus. I don't mean to be sacrilegious here about anybody's beliefs, but it has always seemed to me as I analyze the narratives being spoken that there is another reason the fundamentalist Christians are so adamant about life beginning at conception. If you look at the history of the anti-abortion movement, you'll see that it really does not begin until the early 1980s. The older generation of fundamentalist Christian leaders like Billy Graham actually believed in a woman's right to choose. So if that's true, you might ask, then what changed? Part of the answer to that question is that the huge fundamentalist megachurches were concerned that the IRS was going to begin to look at the millions these churches were taking in and the rich lifestyles of their leaders, what the IRS wanted to look at was whether they were violating their nonprofit status, that they were actually acting as for-profit organizations that should be paying taxes. Realizing that their financial status was not something they could campaign on, they turned to anti-abortion sentiments as a way of garnering political power in an attempt to influence government bodies to not look at their finances. Now, I'm being a little simplistic here, but if you look closely at history, the seeming fanaticism about fetuses actually being killed was a much stronger rallying cry that citizens were willing to give their money to and vote for politicians that promised to overturn Roe v. Wade. The first thing that I want to say, I grew up Southern Baptist. So when you talk about the evangelical church, etc., and and the splits and the schisms that have happened in the Southern Baptists and the Episcopalians, et cetera, it, it's always over a change of belief system. 
the schisms happen, you know, the Episcopalian church, do we marry gay couples or not? A schism happened and there's now more than two Episcopalian churches. The Southern Baptists just did it over women pastors. You know, can women hold leadership role? So our beliefs are changing and evolving all the time. And as I have grown up through Southern Baptist to religious science, which is a, a science of mind, did a little flirtation with Judaism and now at you know some level of Buddhism, my beliefs have evolved. And I think it is inherent upon us to remain tolerant of people at their own level of belief and evolution, because that's part of what being American is. That's what why we're all here. We have religious freedom that, that we put in our constitution. It's part of the First Amendment is because the the Puritans who came to this country had been kicked out of Holland and they had been kicked out of England because they were too extreme. And people ended up uh, on the Mayflower coming to, to colonize this, this country because they wanted the freedom to practice their, their very ascetic and seen as extreme religion. We have, have never like uh, graduated entirely from this extreme traditional perspective, you've got to suffer kind of Christianity that the Puritans, you know, bequeath to us. That's the first point. What you're talking about, your story about the soul and when is the soul make it a human, et cetera, is something that I worked out when I was 16 and I found myself with an unwanted pregnancy. And I struggled for weeks with the decision of, do I keep the baby? You know, will my boyfriend marry me? Do I give it up for adoption? And eventually I did settle on, on an abortion. And I reasoned out for myself at 16 that the soul and the body are separate, much as, you know, I was Southern Baptist at that point. So that was the belief system I had. And I went through that same logic process of like, when does the soul enter the body? There's also Christian beliefs that say no more than one soul can inhabit a body at, at a time. If there are two souls in a body, it's called possession. And there are rituals to exercise the, the unwanted soul that is trying to take over the body. And so I reasoned out for myself that viability or birth was the time when the soul actually entered the, the fetus. And it's and you know, whether it's a zygote or embryo or or fetus is, you know, a path of development. So I got to that point where I was like, I know that if I carry this child to term, I'm not going to be able to give it up for adoption. I am 16 years old. I don't have a partner. My family, who had initially threatened to throw me out, said, no, we won't really throw you out. But it was also an abusive alcoholic home, and I didn't want to bring a child into that home. And so I, I opted for the abortion. And I have had no guilt because of that belief system that you know we are energy. And energy can't be destroyed. And if our soul to me at that time, a soul and energy were kind of the same thing. And it was really the elimination of the vehicle and the knowledge that that energy, that soul would transfer then or become somebody else's child. And it wasn't dead. But that again is my belief. And I fortunately, when I was 16, abortion was legal. And other young women or women who find out that a child is not viable are losing their rights to make those decisions for themselves. That distrust of women's ability to make those decisions for themselves is why I'm at a slow burn and why I'm offended by the minority of people who wish to 
glom their beliefs onto me and turn it into U.S. law. So in closing for me, you know, they did do one good thing two or three weeks ago now, you know, from the date that we're recording this. They did deny the independent state legislator theory. And so I just want to like say not everything the Supreme Court is doing right now uh, is a threat to democracy. But I do want to say that it feels as if the Supreme Court is out of touch with mainstream America right now. Well, we started by looking at the recent Supreme Court rulings and what they might mean to democracy in America. And I'm sure you can see by now that these case rulings are being driven by very complex forces that are whirling about as we attempt to navigate our way toward strengthening our democracy or losing it. I want to thank you, Debbie Lynn, for sharing your very personal feelings about all that we've explored today. And until next time, let's keep the flame of freedom burning very brightly. See you then.